Uh, today we're continuing uh, our series in Romans and with quite a, uh, uh, I guess, a sobering passage uh, today to look at. So let me pray for us and then I'll read and Duncan will come and, and expand it for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, for your word. We thank you uh, that your word speaks so deeply into the human condition and uh, this passage uh, stands out in that regard. It speaks to the the real extent of, uh, of the fallenness of the, of the human condition. And we pray that you would, we would feel its weight today um, where we need to and also feel the wonder of your grace in Jesus. Uh, so we uh, just pray that you would speak to us through this passage. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you've got one of the Blue Church Bibles, there'll be a bookmark there. And we're going to uh, read from uh, verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen too. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity For the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women. And were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Uh, well, friends, uh, thank you for being here again. If uh, we haven't met, uh, my name's Duncan, a pastor here. Um, we're going to get to this passage in just a moment to uh, hear its message uh, for us. Uh, but uh, before we do that, I'm told that in order to capture the brilliance of a gemstone, you, you probably are aware of this. These are all things that I don't have a great amount of experience with. Uh, but in order to capture the brilliance of a, a beautiful gemstone or a diamond or something like that, uh, jewellers will often present them against a black background. You, and once you kind of hear that, you think, oh, yeah, of course, every time I go near a jewellery shop, everything's back against a black background. I'm told that a coloured background can be too distracting while a white back, black, a background is uh, too reflective or something. So they use a black background, and one source I read this week uh, described it as a black background creates a neutral palette where the jewellery itself acts as the star. There we go. That's the kind of uh, thing you'll get in a jewellery store. Now, I tried, uh, I spent far too long actually trying to do some picture editing to illustrate this, and it didn't actually work. My skills are far too amateur. This is the best I could come up with. So, okay, here's, here's your... Uh, no, 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 that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, just, that's just a photo. But uh, I tried to get a different coloured background and it just didn't really work out. <laughs> but, I mean, you can see what happens when, kind of, when you change the background of, a, of, a, of this. Uh, that's why we display them in cases like this, in this black background. Well, friends, keep that in mind. Uh, as a church, we've begun to read this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, to the Romans. We saw last week, we looked at the, uh, Paul's great introduction to his whole letter, uh, right up until verse 17 that we also read today. Um, we saw last week that Paul is captivated by something. He's captivated by the gospel, by this great announcement that has come to him, uh, that he is sharing with the world, a great announcement about a great victory that brings joy uh, Paul's captivated by the gospel, and that's what this letter is all about. And for Paul, the gospel is like the most brilliant jewel. It's like the most brilliant, sparkling jewel. And we read it earlier in verse uh, 16, uh, at the start of our reading today. Paul's not ashamed of this gospel. He, he, it is for him the most wonderful, sparkling gem. Uh, he's not ashamed of it because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For, as we heard last week, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Paul's been captivated by this gospel. All of last, the, the introduction to the letter has been about this wonderful gem that he treasures. And so it's a little bit of a shock, isn't it? When you get to verse 18, the passage that Steve just read for us, after this great introduction to this wonderful announcement to the world that brings joy, and then we have in verse 18, from the gospel is so wonderful, the power of God, to the wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. And can you feel the tension of what's going on here? Can you feel the tension? Uh, friends, what Paul is doing here and will continue to do right up until um, most of the way through chapter 3, and it will take us a few weeks to get through it, what Paul is doing here is he's laying down the dark velvet 
background, uh, the backdrop for the jewel of the gospel to be placed onto. He's laying down the dark background in which the gospel shines in all its brilliance. By the time we get to 3 verse 20, he's done that in a really complete way, and it is confronting. It is confronting. Uh, But his purpose is confronting to us, but Paul's purpose in doing this is that when he then gets to, he comes back to the gospel, when he comes back to this message, this news about what Jesus has done, when he gets there, we'll be able to see it like he does, something incredibly precious, something that we treasure. So friends, what we're going to do today is kind of go along with Paul as he starts, he starts to unroll this black velvet backdrop. He starts to do it. Uh, and let's do it as we also remember what we saw last week, that this is not just Paul's theories about life or his good advice. This is the gospel of God given to us through his appointed apostle. Uh, Paul's just a messenger sent by the risen Jesus to bring this gospel to the nations. Well, uh, friends, the basic reality, so we're going to read through, sort of look our way through this passage. And right at the start, if you've got verse 18 there, the the basic reality of this dark backdrop uh, is, in verse 18, the wrath of God. There is something that God responds to with wrath, with real personal, real anger. There have been uh, numerous attempts to uh, try and interpret this in a different way, all of which, it seems to me, don't really stack up. Uh, This is real, it is personal, and it belongs to God. There is something that causes this reaction. Uh, But it's also important to say it's not like our wrath. It's not like our anger. Uh, It's not like when you... Uh, when you feel your frustration rising because you really must head out somewhere right now and you can't find your car keys, maybe it's just me, Uh, and someone around you does something annoying when you're at that moment and you're just frustrated and then you're off. Okay, (laughs) I can't believe you did. It's not our kind of fly-off-the-handle kind of wrath. That's not what's on view here, a kind of emotionally unstable God. Uh, One of the great... Christian statements of the summaries of the Christian faith, something called the Westminster Confession, uh, describes God as being like this. It says that God is without body parts or passions. God is without body parts. It's not saying that God is without any emotion or anything like that. What it's saying is he's without passions. He's not ruled by his passions. Uh, He doesn't fly off the hook. His relationship with his world is entirely consistent with his character uh, and he is utterly reliable and faithful to that. So when Paul talks about God's wrath, he's not talking about me losing my keys. Okay, that's the kind of big point. He's uh, he's He's talking about God's settled and right opposition towards evil. God's settled and just and good right opposition towards evil. He loves his world. He created it to be a good, to be a place of life and peace. But sin and evil have corrupted it, and God is angry about that. 
And his anger, did you notice as you read through, his anger is being revealed. His wrath is being revealed. There is a, a wrath that the Bible talks about, a future day of wrath at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Uh, but that's not what's on view here. Paul's saying God's wrath is real now and is being revealed now. And it's not just wrath against sin and evil in the abstract, as kind of abstract forces out there. You notice it is wrath being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. All the godlessness and wickedness of all people. So this is the fundamental kind of first role of the, the, the velvet, okay, the black background. The, the thing that underlines everything Paul will go on to say, the reality of the wrath of God. But why is it? What causes this response within God? What causes it? And that's what he goes on to talk about. Not only that wrath is real and personal, uh, it has its reason, wrath's reason. And the ultimate reason, um, yeah, 18 to 20 up there, the ultimate reason for this wrath, this right and just and settled opposition to evil, this anger that is, that God, that is God's, this wrath that is expressed, the ultimate reason that we're told here is because people have failed to worship God. People have failed to worship God. And as Paul goes on, the responsibility for that lies squarely with people, with us. God, we heard it before, God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature in his creation. It's what theologians refer to as general revelation. Uh, general revelation as opposed to special revelation. The general revelation uh, that is on view for all people in this world uh, as opposed to God's special revelation where he reveals himself not in the world but through his word, through speaking, and ultimately he reveals himself through his son, Jesus. Um, the, it, Paul's talking about general revelation here, what we can know of God in his creation. There is enough out there to know that God exists and that he is eternally powerful. And Paul's saying that all of us know this. It is plain, but people suppress this knowledge. Uh, it's a little bit like if you're, uh, if we can go back to the sermon slides, uh, it's a little bit li uh, like if you're, um, uh, yeah, if you could click, I'll, I'll, I'll do the slides. So just click onto the sermon slides and there should be a picture of a beach ball there. So get the picture of the beach ball up. It's a little bit like this if you're in a pool. Uh, have you ever done this? Uh, you know, at various times, have you ever tried to be in a pool and you tried to um, push the beach ball down as 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 much as as deep as it can go for as long as possible, and it always sort of folds and pops and rolls back up to the top, right? Um, uh, it's it's kind of like what this is what Paul is saying when he's saying that uh, the knowledge of God is plain, but people suppress it. We we push it under the water. Um, it goes against the grain. The ball is made to float, and everyone can see that. And pushing it down goes against what is obvious and what it was made for. And Paul writes that when it comes to God, his existence is as obvious as the fact that this ball was made to float. Uh, but people, all people, 
Instead of recognising that, we spend our energy trying to push the ball under the water, um, suppressing the truth. For those of you a bit more scientifically minded, here's a diagram. There you go. I thought some of you might appreciate that. Uh, But here's the thing, friends. Um, Paul says that this is what we do. The knowledge of God is plain, uh, but we suppress it. We try and push the ball under the water continually. And here's the thing. Not worshipping God doesn't mean not worshipping at all. I'll say that again. When we turn away from worshipping God, that doesn't mean the alternative is not to worship anything. The great 4th century theologian Augustine prayed to God. and he, This is a great and wonderful, profound prayer. He said, You have made us for yourself... And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What, what Augustine is saying there, uh, and what's on view here with Paul, is that we are made to worship. We are all worshippers. We are all 24-7 worshippers. When you go down to the shops, when you walk down Ocean Street, and when you go online... When you go to the sports club on Saturday, you are surrounded by worshippers and you're one of them. I don't just mean a kind of specific worship, uh, like uh, the Aussie worship of sports, although that is one of our great Aussie idols, isn't it? Um, uh, not, I'm not necessarily talking about a specific one here, but deep in all of us, what we were made for is to worship, to worship, to Put our hope and desire and longing into something. Um, uh, An American novelist uh, called David Foster Wallace, he wasn't a Christian, uh, but I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, He saw saw this reality and he he said this in a speech he gave. Uh, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is is what to worship. Our heart has to worship something, something that we are looking for to satisfy our deepest desires and needs, and that is true whether we believe in a God or not. And the tragedy of the human heart is that we keep looking for things and people to meet those longings, and they become our God. They become our gods, our idols. And friends, so the alternative to worshipping God is not no worship. It is exchanged worship, swapped worship. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about uh, in verse 21 to 25. Um, I don't have this in the sermon slide, so if you want to have it up there, that would be great. Verse 21 Uh, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped 
and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. It's tempting, isn't it, to read that and think, of course we don't engage in idolatry like they did with physical idols. Uh, But that's not what is on view here at its heart. At its heart, this exchanging of the creator for created things can take the form of actual stone idols right there. But uh, uh, um, as one theologian put it, our heart is a a factory for idols. (laughs) We are continually looking for idols, other things to take the place of God. Roth's reason, friends, is that we have failed to worship God uh, and we have exchanged. That doesn't leave us not worshippers. We just direct our worship elsewhere. Well, it's a bit of a sober scene, isn't it? Uh, what Paul does now, uh, what Paul does now in the second half of this passage, uh, is go on to talk about what this wrath looks like, how how it is. Remember, I said before, it is now being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. Paul goes on to talk about what it looks like for this wrath to be revealed. People fail to worship God, they exchange their worship, that which brings them under God's wrath. And the main way that his wrath is expressed here and now is you read it as we, you, you, perhaps you picked it up as we read through, it's repeated again and again. The main way God's wrath is expressed is through God handing us over, giving us over to our idolatry, to our exchanged worship giving us over. And again, this isn't God throwing up his hands in frustration and just saying, fine, have it your way. That's not the way God operates. This is his just and settled response to the rejection of his creatures. He's not going to treat us like robots. Uh, He lets us experience the consequence of our rebellion. And in the big picture of Romans... In the big picture of Romans, he does this so that we can see how foolish our idolatry is. So we can return to him because he knows that our, God knows that our idols will never satisfy us the way that we want them to or think they can. Back to the sermon slides. Sorry, mate. We've got another quote here from, uh, uh, from the same guy who said that before, David Foster Wallace. He says, uh, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you in your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You know what he's, you get what he's saying here? Not a Christian, this, uh, this guy, but he's, he's picked this up. Our idols don't satisfy us. They don't satisfy us. They never will. And Paul hand, uh, God hands us over to them so that we might know that. We might know that. What Paul does now, as, when he, as he works through this last half, is to paint a broad picture of what it looks like to be handed over to this exchanged worship, this false worship, what it looks like 
for us to keep trying to push the ball under the water uh, when we live against the grain of who God has made us to be. And the first and most controversial of these uh, is the way in which our exchanged worship shows itself in our sex lives. And friends, you've got to be living under a rock, don't you, uh, to not know that this is the big issue in our culture at the moment, the big one, when it comes to the difference between classic Christian belief and our current cultural values, the whole area of human sexuality is the big issue. Uh, And it seems to me increasingly that if you are going to hold what the Bible clearly teaches about sex and what Paul says here, you will open yourself up to being hated and increasingly you will be legislated against and you will be re-educated. Um, it's, in, it's important, though, that we don't respond with a kind of shrill self-defensiveness in the face of that. We are not being persecuted, like so many brothers and sisters across the world who are in fear of their lives for faith in Christ. It's important to say that. But there is, there is a real pressure in our society And it's really important that we have clarity on what's going on here, on what Paul says, and what he's actually saying, and how we can live in its light. Well, we'll go back, sorry. Um, The first thing he says, if you've got your Bibles open there, in verse 24, uh, we read it already, he mentions it earlier, verse 24, the first thing he says is this Handing over shows itself in sex outside of marriage. Uh, The Bible's position, the position of Trinity South Coast, uh, is that sex is a good and powerful gift from God and that he has given it for marriage, for the particular relation of a man and a woman bound together by public promises for life. That is where where sex is made for and where it will flourish as God intended it to. Uh, So verse 24, uh, Paul sees the the first outworking of this, God handing us over to our idols as being a general um, handing over to sexual immorality, uh, sexual um, activity outside of marriage. But in verse 26 and 27, which are really the kind of ones that really cut against (laughs) our culture at the moment, don't they? In verse 26 and 27, Paul zooms in on a particular outworking of this uh, in homosexual sex. Now, friends, we need to be very, very clear here. Um, Actually, sorry, before we get to that, uh, thinking about sex in general, when we make an idol out of our desires... We won't listen to God's good design. But yes, Paul does zoom in here to talk about homosexual sex. We need to be very clear here. Paul is not talking about the issue of orientation. As far as I can tell, the Bible isn't that interested, actually, in the issue of sexual orientation. Uh, If we mean by that something that is at the core of your identity, in the Bible, what is core about you is not your desires, What is core about you is the fact that you are created by God who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. That is what is core 
about your identity. As a Christian, more specifically, my identity is not as, a, not as gay or straight or anything else. My identity, the truest thing that can be said about me, is that I am in Christ. But more of that in a few chapters' time in Romans. We'll get to that. So this, this is not talking about orientation. What this isn't talking about is not orientation, but activity. Uh, when desire takes the place of God, when desire becomes the deepest longing that must be expressed at all costs, that's what the end expresses itself in not just orientation but activity. That is what this is talking about. And I think why Paul zooms in here on same-sex activity uh, is because it's such a powerful illustration of his main point. Uh, his main point in this whole section, the way in which we go against the grain of the universe uh, by failing to worship God. God has made us a particular way. Uh, he has created us male and female and set up human society with the marriage of male and female as its basing, basic building block. He has given sex for that building block of marriage. And because it is obviously outside of this created intent, Paul describes same-sex activity as a powerful illustration of this rejection of God who, who created us and set up the world. But friends, also notice, please notice one last thing here. Uh, Paul is not singling out gay activity as especially bad. Uh, it is an expression of this handing over to our idols, just like sex outside of heterosexual sex outside of marriage is. Uh, but as you read this chapter, not to deny that it's place in it, but it is one of a whole list, isn't it? Uh, and here is when all of us, whether we've sinned sexually or not, all of us should start to wriggle in our seats. Uh, verse 28, he goes on. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Uh, the way in which God giving us over to our exchanged worship, his wrath is expressed now, is in this giving over, uh, that has a particular and powerful expression in how we receive and use his good gift of sex. But it's not limited to that. Uh, it's, it includes all of those things and more. He's not trying to give an exhaustive list here. He's painting this broad picture of what life looks like under this wrath of God that is being revealed against all humanity because of the wickedness of their hearts, because of their failure to worship him and because of the way in which they seek to worship the created things rather than the creator. There's much more we ought to say there and could say, but we need to move on. 
Paul has one last thing to say in verse 32, and it's really, I think it's really crucial, actually. Um, not only do people exchange worship for idols, uh, and not only is God's wrath expressed in his handing them over to them, in verse 32, did you pick that up? We manage to deny God's wrath, even though we know it's true. We engage in what I've called groupthink worship. Um, verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, uh, but also approve of those who practice them. It is much more comforting to ignore God when everyone else is doing it. That's what this is saying. It's much more comforting. So human society as a whole, uh, do you see what Paul is saying here? Human society as a whole is engaged in this massive self-deception. We not only do the things our idolatry leads us to, we approve of those who do them. As I said, friends, uh, is a really heavy passage, isn't it? And there is much more uh, we could talk about. Uh, as we've kind of come through this passage, what I want to do now is just finish off by tying a few ends together, uh, bringing a few things out that I think are, are, are main points from this and will help us to, uh, to respond and, and consider it. So you see, if you've got your outline there, right at the bottom, the wrath of God, the dynamics of sin, and the jewel of the gospel. Uh, friends, firstly, when we think about the wrath of God, um, the opposite, uh, the, the fundamental conviction and reality about who we know God is, the Apostle John tells us, is that God is love. God is love. What we see here is that the opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is actually indifference, just not caring. Uh, it's, the opposite of love would be to see the evil that so terribly corrupts this world and for God to just shrug his shoulders and give up. That would be the opposite of love. Uh, his wrath at what has caused such misery is actually an outworking of his love. It is actually an expression of his love. Uh, where we struggle, I think, is not that God is wrathful against evil. I think all of us and everyone who uh, believes in God would say that that's a good. I mean, that's a good thing, isn't it? That God is angry about evil. <laughs> of course, where we struggle is not so much. Where we, I think where we struggle is the thought that his wrath is directed against evil, uh, but that is also directed not just at the evil out there, but the evil in here, that is directed against us. The thought that there is evil, not just out there, but in my own heart. Uh, friends, um, there is, I think, as we think about the wrath of God, uh, there is an error and a temptation to speak about sin only or of being so dominated by talking about sin and wrath uh, that in some way communicates a kind of arrogance and eagerness and judgmentalism. That is not what Paul is going on here. And if you find that within yourself, 
please come back next week. Because that is exactly what Paul's going to, come to, to go on to address. It is not uh, the chance to express us, uh, to um, speak of this reality with judgmentalism or eagerness. Human sin that places us under God's wrath is real. But, friends, the gospel proclaims that, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. The flavour that people must go away from when they encounter gospel people, gospel communities, is that of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. The centre of the gospel is not our sin, but our saviour. But, that is true, but, to swing the other way and to speak only about grace and love without sin and wrath is just as much a tragic error. Just as much a tragic. It trivialises what Jesus did on the cross and it cheapens the grace of God. There's a quote here that might come up on the screen. Uh, someone who's written about this says, to, to ignore, euphemise or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary and finally uninteresting. You see what, what's going on here? Uh, the wrath of God is the reality under which all people outside of Christ, stand. It is the black backdrop against which the jewel of the gospel shines and we do no one a disservice. Uh, we do people a disservice by minimising it or euphemising it to ignore it. Um, the wrath of God. Uh, secondly, though, the dynamics of sin. The dynamics of sin. Uh, What's really interesting as you read through, and particularly in verse 24, uh, if you just cast your eye at verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That little phrase, sinful desire, the sinful desires of their hearts, that little phrase, uh, it doesn't mean actually desiring evil things. Uh, what it actually means is desiring good things, but desiring them too much over-desiring them, uh, an and, uh, inordinate desire, if you, uh, a, a desire that's out of order, a desire that is placed in them that is above your desire to please and serve God. Idolatry is not necessarily desiring bad things. Uh, idolatry is just as often over-desiring good things turning good things into God things. And when we do that, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. So friends, responding to sin, uh, as Christian people, responding to sin is not a case of manning up or womaning up and trying harder. Uh, there is much more going on here when we're talking about our sin. Sin, in the end, is the overflow of something deep in our hearts Sin flows out of our worship, our trying to get significance and peace and joy and meaning out of our achievements, out of our possessions, out of our relationships, out of our pleasure. 
the gospel declares, friends, that those things cannot bear the weight of your worship. They won't satisfy you. They won't deliver. Responding to sin in the gospel not, means not just trying harder, it means repenting. It means recognizing our deep brokenness and casting ourselves on God's mercy and that is what will make the jewel of the gospel all the more beautiful for us. You see, what Paul's trying to do here, friends, and uh, he's trying to wipe out, level us. He's trying to wipe out our reliance on ourselves. He's trying to show why it is that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed that is by faith from first to last. It's only by faith. We have nothing to offer, just empty hands to hold out. In the end, friends, this passage, Romans 1, 18 to 32, is good news. It is good news. This is what Paul is not ashamed about. It's part of the good news, maybe I should say more accurately. He's not ashamed about it. He's, it's, he's not ashamed about it because he loves people telling, uh, telling people they're sinners. Uh, he's not ashamed about it because he knows that people are sinners, that they are condemned that they are under judgment. And into that, that darkness, the light of the gospel has shone with brilliant, with blinding brilliance. Friends, don't be ashamed of this word of judgment. It is not a claim of superiority over others, as we'll see more on that next week. It is a description of the reality that Jesus wonderfully addresses. But friends, just like false worship is... is um, a groupthink kind of activity is, is communal. It happens in communities. Uh, there's an element of that that's true about gospel worship. Believing in Christ brings us into a new reality that overturns everything that we've just read. And I just want to uh, finish now by reading out uh, perhaps a description of what this kind of community that the gospel is creating, uh, what this kind of community looks like. The, this is the character of the new world not only of this community that we are becoming, but of the type of world that Jesus is bringing in when he returns to make all things new. It overturns everything uh, that we've just read. It is a community where our desires are rightly ordered under God. A community of purity and faithfulness where we view each other not as objects to meet our desires, uh, but as loved people created in the image of God, brothers and sisters. Uh, It is a world where we know God fully, where we live a life that pleases him, where we are filled with every kind of goodness, light, generosity and kindness, full of joy when we see other people being blessed, uh, seeking life, a community that is a community of peace and truth and mercy where we use our words to build each other up and not to gossip or slander, where we are lovers of God, deeply humble and thankful, inventing ways of doing good, uh, children obeying their parents, knowing God's righteous decree that this is the life we are brought into in Christ. Uh, we not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the new community that the gospel is created, is creating, the one in which we enter into 
not by works, but only by faith. That's the promise of the gospel that shines out even more brightly against this dark background. Um, Friends, we've come a long way. It has been a pretty intense time in God's word this morning. Um, It is a a word that we need to hear, though, isn't it? Uh, As a word that um, is given to us for our good. We talked earlier about the way in which our response to our sin is not just trying harder, it's actually repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. What we're going to do now is together have an opportunity... Um, to express that, to to pray together, um, I'd like to uh, lead you in a prayer of confession together. It's quite a long prayer. Um, uh, it'll come up on the screen. Uh, I will say the first three slides, and then after that, you'll see it says all, and then we can all say the rest of this if you'd like to join in. This is an opportunity, brothers and sisters, Uh, to respond to God's word to you this morning, Uh, to respond to the reality of uh, our brokenness, not not fearfully, uh, but thankfully, knowing what God has done for you, uh, for you. So uh, we're going to have a time where we do that. If you'd like to join, please do. Uh, and then after that, we'll have a time of response by singing as well. The words will come up on the screen. Holy and righteous God, we confess that like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips, but it is not only unclean lips we possess. We are people with unclean hands and unclean hearts. We have broken your law times without number. We are guilty of pride, unbelief, self-centeredness and idolatry. Affect our hearts with the severity of our sin and the glory of your righteousness as we now acknowledge our sins in your holy presence. If you'd like to join me together. We have had other gods before you. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have sought satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. We have loved to praise our own glory more than yours. We have taken your name in vain. We have prayed religious prayers to impress others. We have uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. We have listened to others use your name in vain without grieving. We have murdered in our hearts. We have often destroyed our neighbour with our tongues. We have been quick to judge others. We have considered revenge when we were sinned against. We have committed adultery with our eyes. We have loved temptation rather than fighting it. We have lusted after good things you have created. We have justified our lusts by using the world as our standard. We have stolen what is not ours. 
and coveted what belongs to others. Our lives so often show discontentment, ungratefulness and envy. We have complained in the midst of your abundant provision. We have sought to exalt ourselves through owning more. We have lied to you and to others. We have told distorted truths, half-truths and untruths. We have despised the truth to make ourselves look better. Even in our confession, we look for ways to hide our guilt. If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sin, who could stand? How can we answer you? We lay our hands on our mouths. We have no answer to your righteous wrath and just judgment. We have no answer. But out of your amazing grace, you have provided one for us. Lord, shine into our night with the light of your wonderful gospel. Drive our dark away until your glory fills our eyes. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen.